grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, that's page 1003 of your pew Bibles. 1003, Romans chapter 6, a passage we've looked at before on a few occasions. And with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in the Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ, in God, to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask every week the same thing. You would open our hearts, we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your kingdom and glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth we would speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves, to one another, and to those around us in this lost and dying world. And may you open our hands and our feet. We will go in obedience to Christ, transformed by the gospel, for Christ is risen indeed. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> Two years ago, my wife and I, we, we celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. And uh, to celebrate, we went back to where we went on our honeymoon. We went to Murphy, North Carolina. For those of you who went to public schools, here's a map of where it is located. And, and uh, we, we love Murphy. What we were looking for in Murphy was a place like Gatlinburg without all the people, right? I mean, we dated for like six years. The last thing we wanted to do was to be around people. And you, you've met my father-in-law. So, so uh, we, we went all the way up Murphy. We, we went horseback riding. We, 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 we did all kinds of stuff. And, and to go back was, was a lot of fun. And it, w- it was good to, to, to sort of rekindle all that, to think, you remember when we first came here, you know, we were young, 21-year-olds, now we were older than that, and, and we just really enjoyed our trip two years ago to, to Murphy. But can I show, sh- uh, share with you the best part? I've got it in a picture. It is by far the best part of our trip. My wife who's in the nursery will agree with me, okay? Here it is. That right there. That is an actual picture that I took. It is a dumpster behind the Murphy, North Carolina Save-A-Lots. Well, hold on there, John. You're getting ahead of me. We, we're going to talk about some dumpster diving here in a minute. But this is, was my favorite part. It was on the itinerary. And I didn't tell my wife. It was like, oh, we got to make a quick stop. And I pull in behind the Save-A-Lot. I get out, take this picture. She's as clueless then as you all are now, right? Now, this spot is significant in Murphy, Uh, North Carolina's history. Does the name Eric Rudolph ring a bell? 
It might. Maybe not the name, but what Eric Rudolph did. In July of 1996, Eric Rudolph set a bomb at the Atlanta Summer Olympics. You may remember that. You may remember that following that act, that the FBI had few leads, and so they assumed that it was the security guard, Richard Jewell, who must be the one who planted it so that in planting it, he would save lives and become famous as a hero. And so they they really ruined the man's life. He has since passed. But in reality, it was a man by the name of Eric Rudolph. It took two years before the FBI dropped the case against Richard Jewell and turned it towards Rudolph. In the meantime, Rudolph went off to commit a series of serial bombings that resulted in the death of several people. And and once uh, once they figured out who was behind all these bombings, They put Eric Rudolph on the FBI 10 most wanted list. And once seeing his name there, Eric Rudolph did what any good redneck boy would do. He went into the woods of his hometown of Murphy, North Carolina, and lived. He hid in the woods. If you go to Murphy, North Carolina, you'll find that it's on the other side of of the mountains. It's, It's part of the Blue Ridge Mountain area. So when you go horseback riding, you can go... Horseback riding, we went on the Trail of Tears part of it. It's, you're, you're, you're right on the, the you know, foot of the mountain. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And, and he hid and lived in the woods for five long years. He went in in 1998 and was eventually captured in 2003. A rookie cop found him dumpster diving and that exact dumpster. <laughs> Is that not the coolest thing in the world? Like, if you go on another honeymoon, you're hoping to go to a place like that, right? Come on. That is cool. Just, just a rookie cop, he noticed there's, there's someone rummaging in, in, in the save lives. He goes over to find it out, has no idea who the guy is. Come to find out, is one of America's most wanted criminals. That's a good way to start a job right there, right? Now think about it if you're Eric Rudolph or you're any criminal who is on the run. Maybe you've broken from prison or committed a crime. In a very real sense, you are free. You're free. You're not imprisoned. You're not in handcuffs. You're not waiting for trial. You are free. And Eric Rudolph could go anywhere he want, like save a lot's dumpster. But in a more real sense, he wasn't free at all. Would you like to live your life hiding in the woods lest you go to federal prison? And if you were in that situation, would you call it freedom? Much in the same way, I find that for we Americans, we pride ourselves on the idea of freedom. Good timing on my wife, by the way. Uh, um, we pride ourselves on the idea of freedom. Freedom, uh, is, for some, it, it might mean uh, 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 a, 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 uh, the idea of, of um, a progressive relativism by which we, we are moral libertines. For others, it is rooted in a divine calling by which we are, we are free. Regardless, we Americans, we all pride ourselves the idea of free. Yet if you look at the statistics... If you follow the news, if you just open your eyes in your neighborhoods, perhaps in your own life, I think we would all admit we are anything but free. On the surface, yes. 
But in reality, we are very much in bondage. The key, what we see here is that because Christ is risen from the dead, you and I are indeed free. Notice we begin with the question here in verse 1 of chapter 6. It's right there. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question. This is rooted in what Paul said in Romans chapter 5 at the end end of verse 20, which said, where sin increased, grace abound all the more. So the idea here is that grace is greater than all of our sin. doesn't matter uh, our past, doesn't matter our mistakes. doesn't matter what other people may say about us. The issue is that the word there, where sin abounds and sin abounds in all of our lives, grace will abound all the more. And that leads to, to the uh, question of the Christian life. Does that mean that we should just keep on sinning so that grace can keep abounding and Jesus get more credits? This is a perpetual question that we ask ourselves all, all, all the time. Is, is, is why surrender sin if God is just going to forgive us of sin? This is a question we still ask today. Now, Paul clearly rejects this libertarian idea of the Christian life. We should not let sin reign in our bodies. And his rejection of that is rooted in both the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. So that's the question. Should, should we keep sinning so that grace can keep abounding? The answer is no. But here's the principle behind it, starting in verse 2. He begins with the crucifixion, verse, verse 2. Um, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in the Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Notice the emphasis here is on the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, what we typically do when it comes to the gospel is we view the gospel as transactional. That is to say that uh, Jesus died for my sins, the ends. And so what I do is I come to the cross and I say, please forgive me. There's a transaction that takes place. Uh, we get his righteousness. Uh, we, we, he gets our sins. Bada bing, bada boom, we, we're saved. We view it transactionally. And although there's truth in that, what we fail to see is the true magnitude of the gospel is that it's not just transactional, it's transformational. And Paul shows us this here in, in that it isn't just that at the cross something happened to us, but that something has happened for us. And that is to say that, that Jesus died for our sins, liberating us from those sins. And so what you see Paul's going to do is both the objective and the subjective. The objective truth is Christ died for our sins. Subjectively, it means I died to my sins. To illustrate this point, he, he looks at the issue of baptism. At baptism, what we have is a candidate coming before the, the saints, and what you see before you is the old man who is buried. And so you get the idea that here is who this candidate was, now having been washed, now this person is new. They are new. And you see it there in verse 3 that Paul claims we have been buried with him by baptism. That is to say that salvation is not merely accepting a gift, it is a renovation of the heart. And every renovation begins with destruction, right? If you want new cabinets, you may want to get rid of the old ones, right? If you want a new deck, you may want to do something with the old deck, right? That renovation requires a type of death. Things must be thrown out. 
Things must be gotten rid of. And in this sense, what Paul means is that as pictured in baptism, we are crucified with Christ. We die to our sins. When we were kids, you, you young folks won't understand this, we didn't have streaming services, which meant if your favorite show was on the telly at a certain time, you either watched it at that time and you surrendered your, you, you centered your life around that schedule of the telly, or you missed it completely, right? If you want to watch TGIF Fridays, right, it's from 8 to 10 every Friday, that means if you got there at 7.30, TGIF Friday ain't going to be on. If you got there at 11.30, you missed it. If you watch Family Matters at 8.30, you got to be there at 8.30. And you can't pause the commercials. you got to watch it right then and there. That creates a problem. Uh, 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 TV time was bath time. And you can't do both at the same time, right? And so what we would try to do as kids is, is we would want to watch our show, and then when commercials hit, hop into the tub. Two minutes later, hop back in front of the telly, right? And then commercial come on, hop back into, right, right, and do this. And our parents didn't like that. Now, if we wore them out enough that day, they would, give, they would surrender to it. But as a general rule, why? Because you're not actually getting clean. If, if, if you're going to get clean, you might as well go get clean. Going through the motions of pouring the water and, and, and putting your arm in and say, oh, that's clean enough now, right? That, 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 isn't, that isn't good enough. So, too, what good is it to be merely a spectator of the cross? To simply look and say, wow, Jesus is a really cool cat to do that for me, and then walk on as if nothing happened. If Christ has died for your sins, you be sure to die to your sins. But it isn't just the crucifixion Paula has in mind here. It's the resurrection. You see it there in verse 4. He began, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ, notice the objective, just as Christ was risen, so too we might be raised. The subjective, objective, subjective. So if there is a spiritual component to the historical resurrection, there's a spiritual component to the historic resurrection. If we have died to sin, we too must be raised to righteousness. Notice Paul describes it there in verse 4 as newness in life, newness of life, rather. So although Jesus was raised physically in the same body, right? In a very real sense, it was a very different body that he had. When Jesus died, he was scarred, he had been whipped, he was pierced, and he was cut. But when he was raised, he was renewed, he was restored. So it is for us. Burial in the waters of death symbolizes the washing of way of sin. We are not what we once were. When we were kids, particularly when we played outdoor sports, baseball, soccer, whatever it might be, uh, my, our mother would always make sure we had clean uniforms before the game, which meant if it were a rainy, muddy game, we saw to it that it was very stained before the next game, Right? And she would panic. There's no need to get it dirty. I don't want to wash it all again. So too we do the same thing, don't we? If you view the gospel as transactional, you're just going to sin so that grace can bound all the more. But if you see it also as transformational, you will be washed and cleansed and, and seek to be righteous forever. My favorite story from church history is a man by the name of Sam Houston. He was better known as Big Drunk. They'll rec recommend becoming one of those. But he was uh, from Texas, known as a very powerful military man and a very influential politician. 
But at the age of 61, he gave his life to Jesus, became a believer. He went down to the creek to, to be baptized. And, and, and as he was going down, the, the pastor noticed that, uh, that Sam Houston still had his wallet on him. So the pastor said, he said, Mr. Houston, uh, uh, do, 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 you, do you want to take your wallet out and give it to someone so we can baptize you? And he said, no, sir, I'm afraid not. It too needs to be baptized. My favorite part of his baptism is that the pastor stood before the entire congregation about to witness this genuine miracle of God in the heart of Sam Houston. And the pastor explained that, that, that baptism uh, symbolizes Jesus washes away all of our sins. At which point, Sam Houston looked at the pastor and he says, I pity the fish downstream. I love that. I love that, right? That's good. That's some good theology right there. So to the Paul, the gospel is not merely transactional. It is transformational. It is not merely a noun. It is also a verb. We must bury the old man to be raised in newness of life. Well, that leads to what Paul does in verses 5 to 14 with the application of, of this principle, the application of it. Notice verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in death like the, his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We've been hinting at this, but here he makes it very clear. This is what theologians refer to as, as uh, our union with Christ. The Bible is full of this language of unity. Can I just give you one verse? Um, I could give you a, a thousand others. Entire books are written on the subject. Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. A good homework assignment would be for you to, to, to look at Ephesians 1, first 14 verses, give or take, and to highlight all the times Paul says, in Christ, with Christ, for him, to him, something like that. And just highlight all those. It's really a good homework assignment. You're state workers. You're not doing anything else. So, so I would recommend something like that, right? So the union of Christ is, is, is essential to Christian theology. It's rarely addressed, but it is a central idea. American evangelicals don't like this because we like to keep our, our religious, spiritual relationships somewhat distant. I'm going to live my life because I'm free, right? But in the Bible, what we see is true unity, reconciliation, that I have died with Christ, I have been raised with him. And this lies at the core of Paul's application. In our union with Christ, we are free from slavery. Notice his argument in verse 6. He says, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Verse 7, it no, we have been set free from sin. Verse 9, death no longer has dominion over us. That is the language of bondage. So you see his point. If we have died in, 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 at the cross, we've been raised in the resurrection, that means we are free. We are free. Now, for the modern reader, the language of slavery is difficult to hear. We rightly loathe such an institution. And it, it, it bothers us deeply to know there are more slaves right now, right now, than there ever has been in the history of the world. Slavery remains a significant issue with human trafficking, both labor and uh, 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 sexual human trafficking. 
Now, we should take those strong, just emotions and apply them to our nature of sin. If you want all slaves to be liberated, as you should, can we for today start with you and me? We are slaves to sin. We are under its dominion. We are tormented by it. All that Paul is asking is that we would hate our sin as much as we loathe uh, uh, institutions of injustice. And this strong language demonstrates and makes it clear that union with Christ equals freedom in Christ. Let me read to you in Galatians chapter 5, Paul makes this point. Uh, where he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm and don't submit to a yoke of slavery. Choose freedom, not slavery. And of course, this is the mistake the, the Israelites made, right? God liberates them from the hand of Pharaoh. They go out in the wilderness and they discover hunger pangs. And what is it they want? They discover they would rather have their bellies full by Pharaoh than to be fed in the wilderness by their father. We often will choose slavery rather than freedom. And Paul says, no, 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 you've been made free, live free. And, we, and, and in Christ, in this union, we are set free from its oppression. Notice verse 12, he uses the word of reign. This is oppression that slavery gives us. It is the language of a despot. Sin doesn't just enslave, it will oppress us. Your idols do not love you. Your sin does not support you. You will be oppressed. You will be enslaved. But as he says there clearly in verse 4, for sin should have no dominion over you since you're no longer under law. You're under grace. See, what the law does, it comes and says, you're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. You're not as good as everybody else. Compare yourself to everyone else. You'll never measure up. It is, it is the, the bondage of accusation and shame and guilt. And in comes Christ who fulfills the law and sets us free. Why? Because we're under grace and not law. You are free. Now, having been united with Christ in both his crucifixion and resurrection, what are we free from? And we can look at dozens of things, but for the sake of time, um, I want to look at three. What are we freed from in the resurrection of Jesus? The first is made evident in this passage, and that is that we are freed from sin. We are freed from sin. Jesus remarks in John chapter 8, Surely I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of it. But if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. And one of the ways I have found, particularly in modern America, that, that we become enslaved to sin is that we choose our identities to sin. Let me give you just an example. This is not me being critical, just, just an example. If, if, if you were to go to, say, Alcoholics Anonymous, okay, one of the things you have to do is, is part of the steps is you would have to introduce yourself as, say, my name is Kyle. I am an alcoholic. And, and so long as you're in the program and even beyond, your identity is tied to your struggles, to your vice, to your sins. So you may be 30 years sober and still you would have to say, my name is Kyle. I am an alcoholic. Now, the purpose of that is to say, this is an area of weakness I have. 
This is an area of, of real temptation and addiction I have, and I need to keep it in front of me. There is some wisdom in that. I know some of my areas of temptations, it's best I don't even knock on that door. I don't go anywhere near that. I get that. But what is embedded in our mind is my identity is tied to my sin. I am an alcoholic. I am addicted. I am a womanizer. I am a compulsive liar. I am power hungry. I am a failure. I am a loser. I am a nobody. I am X, Y, or Z. And without realizing it, we are choosing bondage over freedom. Because the gospel comes and says, no, you are not what you have done, for that has all been washed clean. You are now hidden in Christ. You are now his. Freedom from sin. Apostles make this point in Acts chapter 13. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Notice transaction, forgiveness. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. Transformation. Transformation. Christ liberates us. You have died to sin. Now go and live in the newness of life. Secondly, we are free from accusation. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, there is now no condemnation to those who are hidden in Christ Jesus. If you're looking for a verse to meditate on for the rest of this week, let it be that one. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Yeah, but no, there is no condemnation to those who are hidden in Christ. One of the great weapons that Satan has is the voice of accusation. That is that you don't measure up. You made another mistake. Everybody was watching. You're a failure. You're a hypocrite. Who could ever love you? Accusation, accusation, accusation. One of the great theologians, Martin Luther, really struggled with this, this, this accusation constantly. Just it was a burden on his soul. You can actually go to the Wartburg Castle where he translated the uh, uh, Bible into German. You can still read Luther's translation of the Bible. There was an ink blot where, where he felt the devil was accusing him so much. He picked up his ink block and threw it at him and it hit the wall, right? I'm not saying you do that, okay? Um, but it does illustrate that this, this was a real burden on his own soul while translating the Bible into German. Let me read to you from Luther. He says of Satan, Martin, you are a liar, greedy, lecherous, a blasphemer, a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God. By which Luther would say, well, yes, I am. And indeed, Satan, you do not know the half of it. I have done much worse than that. And if you care to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and help make it more complete. But you know what? My Savior has died for all my sins. Those you mention. Those I could add, and indeed those that I have committed, but am so wicked and I am unaware of having done so. It does not change the fact that Christ has died for all of them. His blood is sufficient. And on the day of judgment, I shall be exonerated because he has taken all my sins on himself and clothed me in his perfect righteousness. Which would you prefer here this morning? The forked tongue of demonic accusation or the sweet voice of a loving Savior drawing us to himself. Many people ask, which one is conscience? Which one is accusation? I'll tell you the difference is that accusation will always lead you away from Christ and back toward your identity and sin, slavery. Christ 
and the movement of the Spirit, the conviction of the Spirit will always move you to the hope we have of freedom in Jesus. You can be free. You can be free. Who cares if you don't measure up? Who cares if you don't look like all the other boys and girls in class? Who cares if you're not as successful as your parents wanted you to be? Who cares if, 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 if any, who cares about any of that sort of stuff? You are free. Now go be free indeed. Third and finally, we are free from anxiety. At the root of anxiety is the fear of what we cannot control and the discontentment with the things that we can control. Spend your life looking for purpose or waste your life trying to fill the hole in your heart and you will find only crippling despair and depression pills. If Christ is risen and we have been risen with him, then why worry about the things you cannot control? Why do it? Why do we seek ultimate value in the things we think we can? Will you surrender your children to Christ? Will you surrender your marriage to Jesus? Will you surrender your, your paychecks and your, 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 your contentment and your hope and your, your, your careers and, and your dreams and, and everything else? Will you surrender it all to Jesus? We just sang earlier how grace is sufficient for us. Why do we spend so much time focused on things that God has already taken care of when he calls on us to fulfill the calling he has on our lives? What did Paul say in Philippians 4? I have learned that whatever situation I am in, to be content. And by the way, he wrote those words while in prison. It's amazing, isn't it? Eric Rudolph was free, but he was really in bondage. Paul was in bondage, but in reality, he was free. If Christ is risen, you are free. Do you know who the first American or North American missionary was? It was a man by the name of George Leal. I'll put him up here. George Leal was a former slave who left the American colonies to become a missionary in Jamaica. He left in 1782, an entire decade before William Carey left England for uh, India. And Carey is typically considered the father of the modern missionary movement. You could probably credit George Leal. He began preaching in 1773, and in America planted the first African-American church made up mostly of slaves. He eventually, again in 1782, went to Jamaica. He became the first Christian to win a significant number of souls in the nation, and he first planted a church, a number of churches made up of, of slaves. He supposedly reported, he reported a supposed 400 baptisms. In 1789, his congregation was organized, and four years later, the Windward Road Chapel became the first Baptist church on the island. He achieved these successful uh, evangelistic and church planning efforts despite growing opposition he faced from various groups on the island. And this included white slave owners who feared the impact upon a slaved and population embracing Christianity. Concern arose that, quote, if their minds are considerably enlightened by religion or otherwise, it would attended with the most dangerous consequences. 
Here's, here's what the slave owners were saying. If they discover they are already free, they'll pursue greater freedom. How did that happen? A man found freedom while still in chains. So he went to preach freedom to those in chains. And those who held him in bondage were rightly scared to death. Because Leal understood true freedom isn't just a social issue, and it is. It is first and foremost a spiritual one. You can live in the freest nation in the world and be in bondage to sin and addiction. Or you can be in chains like the Apostle Paul and be freer than anyone in the United States of America. What's the difference? Christ has died. Will you die? Christ has risen. Will you rise to newness of life with him? So I don't know your story. I don't know your needs. I don't know where you are this morning. But there is freedom in Christ. If you are in bondage, find, it, find your freedom and liberty in Jesus. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let's pray.